And welcome to your shelf or mine or mine or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Angela Stevenson from the Lyman Public Library. I'm Sue Piper, publisher of the Columbia River Reader. I'm Hal Kalbum, author of uh, Empire of Trees. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming on. I think we want to just get started. If you guys could tell us about Empire of Trees and how it came about. Well, it came about because the Columbia River Reader has been publishing locally for about 19 years, and Hal and I cooked up a series five years ago called People Plus Place, where we featured interesting people doing unique things around the Columbia River area. And about a year and a half ago, Joseph Govednik of the Callis County Museum contacted us to see if we might have any interest in doing a book related to the centennial. He had been contacted by the McClelland family, who's, uh, well, he'd be the father, grandfather, patriarch, John McClelland Jr., had written three previous books, and the family was wondering if there should be a fourth one for the hundredth. And since Hal and I had published a couple of other books connected to the reader, he thought we might be interested, and we were. And being able to plagiarize freely from the McClellan books, we said, okay. <laughs> Sue's idea was to begin with a serialization mm-hmm. because it's a monthly paper. So we declared uh, a centennial year and have now done nine of these chapters, which will become the completed book, which will come out in May this year. Title: yeah. Empire of Trees, America's Planned City, and The Last Frontier. And we added a twist to the people plus place, calling it people plus place then and now. So we contrast history with more modern mm-hmm. developments. When did the column start publishing? In April of 2018 was the people plus mm-hmm. place when Hal came on board. And then we started the then and now variation for the centennial last June. And it will conclude this coming June. So this book is kind of building on those previous books then? It'll be, well, not the books. It'll be a compilation of the feature stories, uh-huh. 12 installments, well, 11, I guess, and expanded somewhat and then compiled into the book. So it'll be very similar to what's being published. But we're very much journalists, mm-hmm. so our approach is to use words and pictures. And certainly the McClellan books are still the, the Bibles. That's where the complete history is. But we're enjoying taking the look back and the contemporary look at the same time. So I'd say our our method is more journalistic. Mm -hmm. When, if you guys know, when was the last McClellan book published? 75th anniversary. Yeah, so 25 years ago. So you really have to cover the last 25 years. Yeah, although, um, frankly, we're taking the whole 100 years as Mm -hmm. our source because last 25 years are okay, but the first 25 are dynamite. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what we really wanted to do. So we kind of fast forward over the last... 50, last 75 years really highlights of a lot of, on the original history and then highlights over the years. But we think the founding story is really the, the uh, keeper. And there's examples, the then and now format was so that we could 
find somebody like Wesley Vandercook, for instance, who was the engineer mm -hmm. that uh, plotted and platted so much of the city. Well, who is his contemporary today? Uh, who are the people that are still engineering? There still are diking and drainage things in this town. Mm -hmm. We studied the Army Corps of Engineers then and now. Uh, some of these are less illuminating than others, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to find out what professions, trades still exist. Some no longer do. How has Longview evolved in the 100 years? What stayed the same? Mm -hmm. So that the journalistic part is fun. I mean, it, it keeps it current. One surprise we had was we thought people might ho-hum the historical stuff, including ourselves. <laughs> and in fact, the historical stuff has been wonderful. Mm -hmm. And we've used a lot of your images right from this Longview room, thanks to online. And that will be a source of the major source of the book. What's your research process like? The McClellan book itself is the Bible. Mm -hmm. There's a book by Virginia Yerudia called They Came to Six Rivers, which uh -huh. is a history of Collins County. And there are three or four other core texts that mention Longview in, in coming and going and passing. Like anybody else, we check ourselves on the web all the time mm -hmm. to make sure that you know, it jibes with history link and sources like those. Uh, but the McClellan book really is the centerpiece of it. And being journalists, you know, we, we don't have to be encyclopedic. We can mm -hmm. pick our spots. The amazing thing, one of them to me, is the quality of the old pictures. Uh, yeah. They are better than, well, I shouldn't say they're better, but they certainly hold their own against anything that you see day to day, you know, in modern times. Ari Long really planned for the history. The, yeah, there's a lot of pictures. I was, they must have had full-time photographers. He they, He knew it was they, historical, probably. The, yeah, and have like hired, a historian working from the beginning. Yeah. They hired John Wilson as their personal photographer for the company. Oh, really? Just yeah. to document the building of the city oh. and the mill. Well, the funny thing about it is these are very traditional businessmen, but they become huckster real estate people really fast because they had <laughs> to get people out here. So people are busy driving, you know, piles and dredging and doing all that stuff. Well, meanwhile, these advertising guys are advertising in 25 papers, the Saturday Evening Post. Full page ad. this Shangri-La uh -huh. on a swamp. And the guys back here said, we, we can't get ready in time. Uh, so there's some amusing instances where the hype out, outpaces the reality of it. But that's they were very savvy to media and all that. They were. In the um, event last night, the Civil War letters, it was interesting that the gentleman came from Minnesota from an advertisement in a Saturday evening post really? yeah. and moved to, to Longview. Yeah. That is really interesting. And there's a demographic that we're not bringing it up heavily, but of course the mill was very southern-based. All their lumber was in Louisiana and, mm -hmm. and in the south. And so one of the anecdotes that we tread somewhat lightly about was that these were southern-influenced business people, and all the people that had worked in their mills were African-American. They had a black workforce. Mm -hmm. So when they planned Longview, their unconscious or conscious supposition was their workforce would be black people. So they planned a section in the town designated as the Negro section where the workforce would live. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't exactly work out that way. People just came to Longview and got the jobs. And after five years, I think they had 65 black people here and they expected 2,000. That's interesting that not very many black people ended up moving out well, with I, the jobs. I, yeah, I, I think the recruitment, they were 1,800 miles away. Mm -hmm. And one of the historians has said that the Longview was historically mistimed because, in fact, even as early as 1925, 
the lumber business was slowing down. Mm -hmm. They'd conceived of this during the post-World War I bubble, and a lot of people were hard up for jobs. And what became the Depression really had some elements in the late 20s, and you can feel that in the literature. They expected 25,000 people in Longview in 1930. They had 10, and those 10 were struggling. And he planned the town to be 50,000, and yeah. we still haven't reached that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with our wonderful wide boulevards. So. <laughs> yes. Do you know, like, his goal, like, 50,000 by? I don't remember the year he wanted it yeah. by, but just that that was the goal, the ultimate goal. I think there's mention of that in the book, but I can't think of it offhand mm -hmm. either. Well, it was a moving target. You know, they, sure. I yeah. think that that was the capacity they looked for. Mm -hmm. And they employed these exotic and nationally known people like Nichols and Olmsted mm -hmm. and the people of the something called the City Beautiful Movement. And they didn't want it to be Weed California, you know, or, or I'm sorry, but Kelso Washington. They, <laughs> they terribly patronizing towards Kelso. Mm -hmm. But they would have these well-ordered Kansas City-style, Washington, D.C.-style streets and boulevards. And the Columbia Theater was built to house about, I think, a third of the population at the time. Think of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. very visionary and optimistic for sure. Even the library was yeah. very yeah. optimistic for the time. And the ill-fitted train library. station, you know, you had to have a train station. Mm -hmm. Trains were everything. So they built a train station that one historian says is would serve three times the population in this Tuscan architecture, and there were no trains coming. They had, to, you know, these were little short-run railroads that were bringing logs down, but there mm -hmm. was no transcontinental service that went by Longview. 1933, there's a whole legacy of floods, but was among the most, the worst of the floods. Mm -hmm. Wiped out all the train tracks. No trains ever came to the train station, so they converted it to a hospital. Surely one of the most ornate Italianate <laughs> hospitals yes. in the late 30s and eventually tore it down. So not always uh, hits. There were a lot of mm -hmm. misses, too. Did you have, like, a favorite story or fact that you learned while you were writing these or researching? Let me ask my editor if she had <laughs> Well, one of the stories I like is the day that R.A. Long got married, he was away from his office something like three hours. He didn't make a day of it. I mean, he was very uh, ambitious and focused on his work. And uh, I think that's kind of an amazing thought. I wonder what his wife was thinking back at the reception. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and an excerpt I'm going to read in a minute tells about his early days. I have a bias, and that is that we tend to see him, of course, as a 70-plus mm -hmm. man, somewhat elderly, a little bit frail. And he was a dynamo, and he was a visionary and a, and a risk-taker, and the things you don't associate with a little old guy in a boater hat. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to rehabilitate that part of his image. I have a bias for this guy, Wesley Vandercook, who was a hands-on character. There's an illustration in the book, and you guys can see it here. We're being unfair to our audience. But <laughs> a famous topographic map mm -hmm. was made that took up a whole room of all the Longview lands plus the woodlands and roads were laid out, and this was all this Vandercook's work. And he said in as early as 1920 about the site of Longview, this river is going to be so valuable, and we hear there's this project to irrigate and electrify all of eastern Washington. This is in 1920. Mm -hmm. We think this site could be more valuable just for the real estate than for the logs. Well, that was hydropower. 
he was predicting what saved Longview in the late 30s, which was the advent of hydropower and the World War. So I'm a, I'm a Vandercook fan. Yes, I'm willing to read any time. So what issue is this from? This was a teaser piece that we did to announce the series. Mm, okay. And this is the, becomes the prologue of the book. Yeah, this was done, um, published in January of 2022. And then we started the actual series in June of 2022. And we had a, a, on the cover R.A. Long shading his, um, his head from the sun and a very spunky-looking Longview mare <laughs> uh, standing up inside in her uh, bright blue in sweater. In front of the library. Yeah. yeah now, I remember library. that day that you guys were doing those photos. Yeah, which was, you know, that's our then and now encapsulated. So I will give a try. This is probably about three or four minutes for those of you that want to go out and take a bathroom break. <laughs> this is called A Hero on Horseback. The Robert Alexander Long of Statuary and Old Black and White Photographs is an unlikely founding figure. We tend to remember him as that slightly frail older gentleman in a bow tie and straw hat. His innate modesty and church clothes, in fact, hid a fierce work ethic, a savvy business sense, and a vast ambition. As we celebrate the life and legacy of Longview's founder, let's envision the kid who left the family farm at 18 with a purpose no grander than just getting ahead, a risk taker. Let's envision his failing hay business that transformed itself into a lumber business, as if by magic. Let's envision a hero on horseback, not an old man cast in stone in a city park, timber cruising through the greatest stand of trees he's ever seen. Hot, dusty, and nearly on top of the world, he pauses on a ridge overlooking Mount St. Helens and the miles and miles of towering Douglas fir on its flanks, sips from a canteen, and calculates board feet in the billions with a cool head and a practiced eye. This town was founded by a lumberman, not a dandy in spats. Not even Paul Bunyan had a bigger heart. His first business, a butcher shop near his home in Shelby County, Kentucky, failed. Searching for any way out and up, he and another 19-year-old decided they could cut and sell wild grass hay in nearby Columbus, Kansas but they cut the grass too late, and it began turning brown. According to local custom, they covered the overcooked hay with lumber to preserve it through the winter. Come spring, the hay was virtually worthless, but the boys sold the lumber for a modest profit. By the age of 24, Long and his partner, Victor Bell, started a lumberyard in Columbus. Long had a natural bet for business, and his partner did not. The Long Bell Lumber Company was lots of long and not much company. Long was yard manager, lumber handler, and bookkeeper. His partners remained mainly silent and provided some access to credit. At age 25, Long met Ella Wilson in Columbus, married her, and moved in with her to a small house in the corner of the lumberyard. According to family records on their wedding day, he was away from the office about two hours. This is a quote from George Creel, a 1907 pro profile of Long. Long was never afraid to take a chance, Creel says said one of his own associates, but when he took it, he always saw that wasn't a chance at all. He saw further than the rest of us and thought bigger. We used to think him visionary and called ourselves practical. Now I see that our practicality was the cowardice of unimagination. Ten years later, Ari Long's company owned 19 lumberyards, helping fuel the building and settlement boom in what was known as the West. 
long tracked the expansion of the railroads carefully and located his yards strategically. During the late 1880s, Longbill began to show an interest in manufacturing lumber, not just selling it, and began buying sawmills in what was then known as the Yellow Pine Country, the American Southeast. Long developed a low opinion of the noxious mill towns that grew up around the logging and lumbering businesses, gangs of often itinerant men tempted by an underworld of drink, gambling, and prostitution. A strong churchgoer his entire life, he believed foremost in the gospel of work, that the energy and efforts of individuals should serve their communities and the larger good. Quote from R.A. Long, I believe no man, no matter how many dollars may be in his till, has a right to cease work simply because he has enough to use for his own purposes. Long retained the name Long Bell despite controlling all the affairs of the company. His capacity for work continued to astonish his colleagues and competitors. Remarking on Long in his mid-fifties, the American lumberman, the leading industry periodical, marveled at his vitality and engagement. Quote, One particular thing the lumber public has never been able to even approximately understand is how Mr. Long has retained the vigor of early manhood and yet has been able to personally conduct the large and increasing business of the Long Bell Lumber Company. Mr. Long, as he was known, handled the correspondence of the company personally. Secretaries came and went, shattered by the volume of dictated letters, telegrams, and reports demanded of them. Long thought anyone who took the time to write him a personal letter deserved a reply and often left the office after midnight, leaving no letter unanswered. As a chief executive, he empowered his colleagues and staff long before the term became popular. His relentless investment in the future of his enterprise helps explain his most momentous decision. In his mid-60s, already one of the great success stories of American business life, Long Bell was by this time the largest lumber company in the United States. He would not retire, as might be expected. Sitting down in 1918 with his extraordinary staff, many of whom had known no other employment or loyalty than to Mr. Long and Long Bell, he broached the remarkable proposition that became Longview. Quote from John M. McClellan, Jr. Its birth was something of an accident, since there was no intention at all of, of embarking on a city-building project when the Long Bell Lumber Company laid first plans for Western expansion. The city, it turned out, was merely a byproduct of that expansion. Wong's ambitious proposal required not only the purchase of some 70,000 acres of prime timber, but also building the milling and shipping facilities to distribute lumber from the remote Pacific Northwest. The company originally thought of building two huge mills, one tied to the railways and the other to a deepwater port. After an extensive survey of potential sites, including as far upriver as Sauvy Island and downriver as Fort Stevens, Long Bell decided on a compromise site at the confluence of the Cowlitz and Columbia Rivers, which could offer both rail and water access. They would build the largest lumber mill in the world. R.A. Long. I have often thought, since we commenced out there, that it's very well that we didn't always know what is ahead of us. I expect if we all knew the amount of work ahead, we could not have gone forward with the courage that we did. The initial impetus for a planned city was the site's topography. The Cowlitz Delta was mostly brush and swamp. Much of it flooded regularly. Much of it was below water level. The first big job, both in the adjacent forests and in the confluent site itself, was an extensive survey and engineering report. The second, even bigger job, would be the enormous effort of damming, dredging, and diking. 
The third job, once the inimitable engineer Wesley Vandercook reported out, would dramatically alter their plans. To get the most from the site, Vandercook argued, and protect their investment, they should dike and enclose three times the amount of land they'd originally intended. Convinced, finally, by Vandercook's plan and his relentless lobbying, Longbill would now add real estate and land speculation to its portfolio of businesses. They would build a city. As usual, Long relied heavily on the expertise and empowerment of his lieutenants, reserving his final decision until he'd heard them out. Quote, I became convinced of the fact that success for an individual after his business has become so large he cannot conduct it himself depends on his choice of men to fill responsible positions. In the years that followed, Mr. Long would maintain his distance. Ensconced in his Kansas City mansion and the aptly named Longview Farm, the hands-on work of platting and building would fall to those who are today memorialized in the city's streets and schools, Kessler, Morris, Tennant, Nichols, Vandercook. Their stories remain to be told. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I had kind of asked Cal a little, and he was and he kind of like glanced over because his family was here before the Fowlers. How did they go about like acquiring land that people were living on when they came here with the lumber company? That's a good question. I mean, there was federal land grants, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you know much more about this than I do? They hustled. They found three or four people that wanted to sell. And they made a deal with those and then asked them if they'd like to sell. Mm. Bit of a pyramid scheme. How did they originally, the ones that owned it, how did they come into ownership? I think probably on land claims. That would be my Yeah, opinion. I think yeah. they just settled. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Vandercook, as usual, there's a story in the book. Goes out and some old boy says, I'll never sell. And Vandercook pulls a wad of $200. Uh -huh. and you know, I mean, so it's name really, your price. Yeah, it's, it's a hustle. The real estate story and the advertising is fascinating. Mm -hmm. so. I had a question about the title. I thought it was The Long View. The overall name that we gave to our project in the beginning was The Long View. And we planned to do the month-by-month -month installments, People Plus Place Then and Now, and roll it into a book, and then have a celebration, which we are planning now, but a celebration at the end. When the book comes out, we're going to have a gala centennial celebration and book launch. The event will be, I've been jokingly calling it a combination, a cross between the Oscars and Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> we want to celebrate the book we want to celebrate the reader reaching its 20th anniversary and, of course, the centennial celebration by the reader and followers. There will be other festivities by the overall large centennial committee, and we're running alongside that within it and cooperating, cooperating with it. But we will have our separate Columbia Reader event, and we're going to call it From Page to Stage, meaning we're bringing the book to life and we're going to be reviewing some of the highlights of the reader's existence over the last 20 years. So that will be coming up at the end of June. And Sue, of course, is diplomatic as ever because it's I that lobbied to change the title from okay. The Long View, <laughs> mainly because of a couple of biases I have. I think our history is of interest beyond just centennial celebrators. Mm -hmm. I think there's something here that I would like to read, and frankly, we're in the business of selling books ultimately, beyond just the timing of our 100th anniversary. So if you pick the title into three pieces, Empire of Trees, Empire is a grandiose loaded word, but it's true. I mean, these guys came out and they saw 
trees like nothing they'd ever seen before. It was supernatural. They'd been cutting these tame little sugar pines on flat land in Louisiana. And we have shots of six or eight loggers standing on a stump. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it was imperial, if you will. And the slopes that the trees were on is like something they'd never seen. How do you get a it's bad enough to try to cut one of these things down, but how do you get up on the top of a mm-hmm. ridge top? So that's the empire part. The second part is this notion of a planned city. And so we say America's planned city. That's grandiose in its own regard. But really, this is about the only place everybody's ever attempted this. Let's literally make something out of nothing. So I think there's appeal there to see how that turned out. Mm-hmm. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. And then the final bit is the last frontier. We have the youngest history here of anybody in the United States. This, in fact, is the last coastline that was ever explored by Indo-Europeans, save Antarctica, in the entire world. Ours is the newest history. So, in a sense, there is the frontier mentality goes and people keep going west, and then they stop, and we're it. So, as a result, our native uh, past is only 100 years behind us, the original Native Americans who were on the river. Settlement, 150 years old, which is, you know, the, the Oregon Territories. Mm-hmm. So, that freshness is fabulous, I think, because we're literally one or two generations away from the people that experienced all this stuff. But it also means it's kind of dicey. It's still being written. It's still happening. You know, it's, it's very new, very fresh, very malleable. So... That's the long story about the title, (laughs) the long view, if you will, (laughs) long-winded. I'm interested in this event. It is going to be ticketed. How does one go? Well, we're we're in our sort of our planning stages now. It will be, it's a book launch, so there will be tickets sold that will give you a copy of the book, Mm -hmm. and the first batch is going to be a signature boxed edition, so it'll be kind of souvenir quality, Mm -hmm. and a ticket, it'll include admission to the gala, and we're going to work out a way for people that if a couple wants to go and they don't want two books, they'll be able to buy a a ticket with a book and then a secondary ticket. But basically the whole purpose is to sell it, to roll out this book and to celebrate it and to sort of, in a way, act it out Mm -hmm. in a way, the flavor of it and some of the highlights in an entertaining and fun way, combining some of the quirky things that people will recognize from the reader. We're going Mm -hmm. to have Miss Manners there. We're going to have Lewis and Clark in some form. And of course, there'll be some serious uh, excerpts from the book and film clips and things like that. And and we expect to have some actual entertainment Mm -hmm. music. And um, we hope that the Bosendorfer piano will be played at the LCC Rose Center is where it's going to be. And we should add that this will be a a donation ticket. The funding that we're doing now is in a not-for-profit partnership with Friends of Longview. And we should credit uh, all of this work has been done thanks to sponsor donations to buy the ad space to do the series. And this uh, current section, we're raising about $60,000 to support giving the books to the high school kids, the printing, the gala, and all those things. Yeah, the Friends of Longview, their purpose is to preserve uh, Longview's history and heritage. So they will be the ostensible uh, gift givers of these books to the high school graduates as a way to kind of instill civic pride, or not that they don't have it, but to boost yeah. their, their sense of their town where they went to school and grew up and have this keepsake gift from their fellow community members when they graduated from high school. We think that's really special. So the tickets to the gala will be a donation, mm-hmm. basically, tax deductible. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll be, be fun. fun. Yeah, and everybody gets a book that night. 
And the Rose Center is a wonderful facility. Yeah. You know, we're very excited about that. And then we're very much in cahoots with the Centennial Committee. Mm-hmm. They originally were going to have their events around the 4th, which is one reason why we set up our time then. Then we realized when they moved to shortly after Labor Day, gosh, we can have a selling season then for mm-hmm. the book and keep it alive and well through the fall. So it actually mm-hmm. works to our advantage. And all those high school graduates will be pouring over the books oh, I over the summer. <laughs> can you imagine the interest? Annual to heck. I want to read Empire of Trees. <laughs> Sign my Empire of Trees oh, on my boy. annual. Yeah. Wow. As a third-generation Longview guy, it's been a thrill for me to come back and do this. Yeah. Um, I got to go to Seattle and have been on television and done stuff up there. But it's meant a lot. And the amount I've learned and the respect for our community and what's happened is just only grown. And uh, it's really gratifying to do that. And, uh, again, all this ad space is paid for by, you know, people, Fiber Federal Credit Union Busack Electric, you know, we have 23 different businesses and individuals who contributed. So it's really, the community thing is true. It's really (laughs) happening. It's nice to validate that sometimes. Yeah, it is. Where else will your book be available to purchase? Well, we know for sure we'll have it at the museum Mm -hmm. and at the reader office and probably the well, we shouldn't speak about our partners yet, but <laughs> local, you know, downtown Longview, other centennial-related merchandise is being sold at the YMCA, but we'll have to look into that a bit more. But we'll have it widely available and online to people be able to order it online. We have our, our existing books available on our website, but we will have more details down the road. Part of the proof in the pudding will be if our existing books, we have one on Lewis and Clark, we have one on Robert Michael Ball's poems. We have a network of 22 different distributor partners, gift shops, museums. Up and down the river. Up and down the river. So it'd be really interesting to trot this in and see if my thesis about there is interest in it beyond is true. Uh, I hope so, but you never know. Well, because this book... Well, this book would be relevant even if it wasn't Longview Centennial. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, you know, it's a It was a moment in history and coming together of these forces that, I mean, it's a beautiful and very unique story, whether it's 100 years or 200 years. And and I think there are elements of what the frontier was like. Mm -hmm. There are elements of what it's like to plan a city. I think those have universal appeal. And maybe too where Ari Long is from. I know they have their own. There's this funny story one time. This like woman came in. I think she had just moved here and she was getting a library card and she was from Kansas. Mm-hmm. And she was like, is this the same Robert Long from where I moved from? <laughs> <laughs> and it was. Can't get away from this guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, there's a not really funny, ironic story. You know, Ari Long it could be argued almost Rob Peter to pay Paul to help build Longview. And his family let him know that. And so the day he stood and announced that Ari Long High School, this wonderful mm-hmm. edifice that we both attended, was going to be donated, he's mortgaging his office building back in Kansas City <laughs> to get the three quarters of a million bucks for Ari Long High School. And again, his heirs and family let him know very strongly that they thought he was frittering this money away on the, the West Coast investment. So he still has a presence in Kansas City, but I think some of those heirs may say, oh, you're from Longview? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> like the, like the, the stepchild that they resent. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything I think about that train station that's been destroyed in the past 100 years that you wish was still here or you wish you could have seen? 
That's a good question. Well, the, I did see, you did too, Hal. The train station became Calus General Hospital. Mm -hmm. and I, was, I was probably born there or something for pizza. You might have been. <laughs> I was born there. I don't remember it, but yeah. I was born there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a hole in our historical knowledge. I would like to see some of uh, the railroad track presence. Mm -hmm. um, the railroad era basically never happened here. It was all these little short, little one-horse, literally, railroads. And there were 280 different railroad companies operating in Cowlitz County. Oh, wow. All with an engine, all with a little bit of track, because that's how they pull logs out, as opposed to the two vast mm -hmm. Burlington and Union Pacific. So another one of those idiosyncrasies. And I guess the other thing, it's not something I miss seeing, but I miss hearing about, is the Cowlitz floods and the bridge disaster, which was actually in the paper about two or three months ago. We see the film of Galloping Gertie, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, you know, gets played to mm -hmm. death about that famous accident of which no one was killed. On January 4th, 1922, the Cowlitz Bridge collapsed and all the cars went into the water. 19 people were killed. And they say some of the wreckage of the cars may still be at the bottom of the Cowlitz River. Oh, it's a major mm -hmm. tragedy that I didn't even know about. And certainly, I mean, it impacted a lot of people. Well, don't forget the footbridge that collapsed ah, on Lake right. Sacagawea. It, yes. Back in our high school days, nobody mm -hmm. died, but I think there's some broken bones, injuries. And then if we really want to dig deep, we can talk about the a certain high school reunion that Susan Piper meandered up to me with a martini <laughs> in her hand and asked me if I wanted to write for a paper. I mean, are we really desperate said, for material? I here? said, are you, do you secretly want to write for my newspaper? <laughs> secretly? And it oh. turned out he did. Yeah, it it actually, turned out I did. I, what I had in mind was a little piece about, can you go back, can you you know return home again? What's it like to be a oh, uh -huh. big city slicker and go back to your hometown? But it kind of snowballed from there. It's been a wonderful addition. Yeah. It's been to the really reader. Terrific. It's in five years now, and I've, mm -hmm. I've loved every minute of it. The paper and the story has legs under it. I'm in a book club up in Seattle, and they mm -hmm. love reading about the Lombia thing. It's really interesting and yeah, unique story. It's, yeah. It is. Let's just hope we can do a good enough job telling it. We have a lot of pictures. So. Pictures yeah. are worth a thousand words, so mm -hmm. this is a very wordy book. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. right. Is your book mostly have the old black and white photos, or do you have new? We're using all black and white. At first, we were going to do the new, sec you know, the then and the now, the have the now be in color, but it seems so jarring to go from the nostalgic feel and look of the black and white, the newsworthiness or the, you know, the newspaper uh -huh. feel, then suddenly have color jumping off the page. So we've converted everything to grayscale photos, and they actually are working very well, we think. The book's going to be very handsome, I would say. The, the rough you know, printouts that we've been seeing so far are, are very pleasing. And like 21st century publishers, we face the so-called uh, unbookish generation challenge. So we've got a lot of quotes, call-outs, and photos used to balance the text. So hopefully mm -hmm. we get a good so balance So if, you, if you flip through the book, even if someone doesn't read the book, they could flip through and because of the headlines and the quotes and the pullouts, I think they could get quite a bit of the story that mm -hmm. way. You won't have to sit down and read it all in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Don't make it like a good for a coffee table book or something I would else. say so. Oh, you yeah. could sit down and just flip through it or read a chapter mm -hmm. and get quite a bit in just a short time. So you mentioned that it's the 20th anniversary of the reader. Mm -hmm. What would you say in the 20 years of, of publishing that you've seen like as real 
historical event or something that you think is notable in the more recent history of Longview? Oh, boy. Let's see. That's a hard question. This isn't Longview-based, but you know, the reader is not, does not intend to be a newspaper, mm-hmm. per se. We don't do breaking news. We don't do crime or politics. But when they imploded Trojan, we did get media mm-hmm. passes. And that was an exciting thing because I, it was probably in about, I don't know, 2000. 10 or so. So I, I was pretty new at this and we were treated like the media. And so yeah. my son was in high school. He checked out a special camera and took pictures. And we had a small group from the reader and uh, went out there at the crack of dawn and all these satellite trucks were lined up. It really made me feel like we were in with the big boys. But just the, I don't know, the magnitude of that event when mm-hmm. after it tumbled down, the, everybody was just silent. And one of the reporters or camera guys, all he said was, Holy moly. <laughs> that would have been amazing to be yeah. there. That's cool. Yeah, so that, that kind of stands out. As an outsider insider on the paper for just five years, I would cite Sue commissioning a series about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm-hmm. And that has proven to be remarkably durable. It's in its fourth printing in the paper. We did a book on it. I think she was incredibly ahead of her time in terms of uh, using, for one thing, it's advertiser-based and free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big deal. I mean, Seattle has just figured that out because all their subscription-based papers are, are dying. So I think it's a she was prescient in doing that. And like I say, the history's young. We have the guy Rex Zeke, his books about rewriting Lewis and Clark history, and we feature his books. So I'm a real cheerleader for this paper, I, I think. It's not news, but it's not fluff either. I mean, I think we have something for everybody. We have mm-hmm. book reviews. We have wine. We have hikes. We have local events, arts and entertainment. Dog uh, grooming. We have a haiku fest. Yeah, we have a... Yeah, it's like a cultural paper. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Not, I mean, I mean you may so. not relate to everything in it, but there's something that you would find interesting. The astronomy column, I think a lot of people like... It's not that they go out and look up at the stars, but they like the idea that they could or mm-hmm. that... You know, they are reading something that treats them as if they are have many interests. And, of course, nobody is interested in everything. Well, I am, of course, page by page. I always say <laughs> it's a very self-indulgent thing to do this paper because it's about everything I'm interested uh-huh. in. Because I don't put anything in there that I think is boring. <laughs> when you were reading, I was thinking, are they going to do an audio book? Oh, we are indeed. You and, are. And nice. we've. Uh, I did... Bob Pyle's poems as well. Uh, yeah. So we're in the process of getting that up on iTunes. Yes. And uh, But we've got to give a shout out to you guys at the library because uh, I think we were stunned at our reliance on the photographs. Yeah. The fact that the pictures are accessible, you can go on there mm-hmm. and look things up and search or browse, and then you can download in different sizes uh, depending on what you're going to do with the picture. And that's of course, that's probably the purpose of the, yeah. of the pictures. Is yeah. to and you and really Angela has done great bulk of that work. Well, and Angela, that's a great comment you made, though, about the self-consciousness of the founders that did set out to document things. Yeah, and I don't know that we've reflected on that, but that's a big deal. That's why we're here talking about yeah. it today. Well, And knew- these cupboards, like, yes. there's, like, no. if you want to see a receipt for a tree that they bought in, like, 1922, <laughs> it's in there. Yeah. Well, they were all engineer types. Yeah. They were spreadsheet people before they had, well, they had yeah. spreadsheets, of course. But, yeah, they must have known they were doing something. Well, it was miraculous. They And they knew it was grandiose. You know, they built the town with blank spaces for the well, future they, for they us. Were, they were thinking yeah. of us. They were selling, but they were also documenting. I mean, if you're 18 miles away, your headquarters is 1,800 miles away. You don't have a telephone. Yeah. So, well, here's how the, the street turned yeah. out. <laughs> they sent five photographs back to Kansas mm-hmm. City. I mean, yeah, I saw a photo somewhere 
maybe you had posted on the Centennial Instagram of them pouring the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, the streets oh, are yeah. still like that. Those hexag- yeah. he- hexagram yes. streets. Are he designed well, that specifically for long. Yeah. I heard yeah. that, yeah. yeah. And the company back in Kansas City, they were probably, I mean, in their weekly or whatever frequency of their publication, their company newsletter, basically, they had regular reports about Longview. It was probably considered like some sort of a summer cabin or something mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. mission that the company was operating far away. Like a church has a mission church yeah. that they foster far away, kind of like that probably. And they probably found it a mixed reaction whether they thought it was a good idea or whether they waste money. It that Stuart, Mr. Long was losing it. Yeah. Or what. Stuart Holbrook, one of the authors I quote a lot, said about Ari Long, he was very modest in his personal life and morals and in nothing else. <laughs> so the Grand Hotel, for instance, I mean, he insisted on all these classical Greek structures in the middle of nowhere, you know, mm-hmm. but that's why we have a hotel and why we have this library we're sitting in. Yeah, he thought really big, and yeah. he had he a high opinion of what his town should be like, and we should all appreciate that. So what do you guys, living now, Hope for Longview next 100 years. Wow, who can who can project 100 years? Um. I think this thing called quality of life will end up being everything, because uh, businesses are increasingly service businesses. Mm-hmm. We're not ripping things out of the ground anymore. We're kind of working more. I actually have another project I work on. It's called that we live in a relationship age. So I think the things that are already happening in Longview, the rise in the healthcare, the education burgeoning. You know that the college is a huge resource of turnover and inspiration for people that are changing and the population will age so you know sue's dedication in the paper to living the good life the quality mm-hmm. of life i think that'll be a big deal i don't know if we will just have been solid population from portland to seattle and there won't be towns if everybody's working remotely <laughs> and you know i mean i think it'll be a totally different society probably i hope it's still good I'm surprised how it's maintained its character in many ways. I mean, the mills are alive and well. There's, as far as I can tell, not much of any tech boom stuff like Vancouver and Battleground have gotten. Right. Um, and the Puget Sound has. Camus, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering where that is or if it's just that we're so oriented toward our uh, extraction-based industries. I mean, there's still jobs there. Nippon, Dinawave, and Norpak, and all these people. I think the library in Oralong High School will certainly still be standing. They're built to last. Yeah. And the design is classic, so. I think so, too. The library's in good shape, isn't it? It is being, yeah, we have. Fixed. Yeah. (laughs) We had a major exterior restoration on the building last year. We resealed the bricks and cleaned the slate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that hadn't been done in anyone's memory oh. and we will be hopefully getting a state grant to redo our HVAC because we haven't had air conditioning the past several very hot summers and that's important to maintaining the integrity of the building and the st- stuff inside. One of the things I intend to include in the final chapter of the book there's a nugget someplace about the number of National Register of Historic Places oh. places there are here. There and are a lot. Yeah, and it's pretty substantial. So of all things, I guess my dream for Longview, because let's not gild a lily completely, I think there are some real deficits here. Like hotels, restaurants, some of the cultural resources aren't what they could be. I think of what Astoria is doing. Mm-hmm. Astoria is booming with a art scene. I think Longview just needs some infusion of that to be a destination spot for people that want to come for it getaway weekend or something. Longview could be that place. There's enough to be a destination, not just a a stopover on your way to the beach. 
I would hope that could happen. Let's hope so. Thank you guys so much for for coming on and being here. And thanks, everyone, for listening to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Angela. I'm Sue. I'm Hal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.